Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Hello, good morning. This is Can Murray and welcome to the Michael Reid Show. Coming up, Brexit is now a certainty next month as the Conservatives notch up a huge overall majority in the UK general election. There's been changes in the North as well, with the DUP losing two seats. We hear what the outcome in the North means for politics on the island of Ireland. The HSE has called in debt collectors to hound an elderly lady to pay her bills. Sinn Féin condemns the practice. The infamous and costly doll printer is back in the news. We hear what was discussed at the Oireachtas Public Accounts Committee. Alcohol Action Ireland calls on the Taoiseach to implement minimum pricing on drink. We'll have these and other stories between now and 11am. But first, have a listen to this. Fanukin, John, Sinn Féin, 23,078. I declare that John Finucane is returned to serve in Parliament for the Belfast North constituency. There you go. That was declaration that uh, John Finucane has unseated Nigel Dodds of the DUP in North Belfast earlier today. Well, as you know by now, it's been a momentous 24 hours in the UK. The Conservative Party has won so far a 47-seat majority in the British general election. I think there's one more seat to be declared, and that effectively means that Brexit is a certainty next month. In the North, it's been a bad day at the office for the DUP. They lost two seats, while the Ulster Unionists forfeited their only seat to the Alliance Party in North Down. Well, what does this all mean to the political map? I'm joined on the line now by well-known political commentator, broadcaster and author on all things Northern Ireland, Eamon Malley. Firstly, Eamon, uh, Nigel Dodds of the DUP lost his seat to John Finucane of Sinn Féin, as we just heard there. How much of a blow is this for the DUP? It's a hammer blow. You cannot, you cannot underestimate. It's incalculable, the loss of, of, of Dodds. Not simply because of his parliamentary experience. But he is what I would describe as the DUP continuum. He is the heartbeat of the Democratic Unionist Party. He has been there so long. He was there by Paisley's side years ago. He was right in at the ground floor. He worked with Paisley in Europe. He's occupied that seat in North Belfast for the last 17 years or so. He is the heartbeat. Defeating him 
is didn't matter what else happened in this election in Northern Ireland for Sinn Féin, taking him out is dramatic within the Democratic Unionist Party. His influence has gone at Westminster. He's irrelevant at Westminster now, as are all the DUP members at Westminster. Well, now, the question is, was this good tactics by Sinn Féin and the SDLP, or was it the electorate saying, you know, we want to remain in the European Union, the DUP uh, basically wants to push Northern Ireland out of the EU, and therefore, Nigel, you're going to be punished for the stand you've taken? Well, I'm going to tell you what happened here. Arlene Foster became leader of the Democratic Unionist Party. And in one of the elections back in 2017, the assembly elections back in 2017, she branded those aspiring to espouse the Irish language as crocodiles. I have been tracking middle-class nationalism in South Belfast from the, word, from the moment that she uttered that word, crocodile. She did so much damage. In all my years in South Belfast, no one of a professional background, Catholic nationalist background, ever spoke or shared the political views with me on the street anywhere I was. They got on with uh, progressing their careers, rearing their families. They ignored politics. Do you see in the aftermath of that utterance by Arlene Foster? You have no idea. That caused a, a seismic change in the psychology of middle-class nationalism. Step forward to Westminster. You had Nigel Dodds parading and strutting his stuff on the stage nightly, at Westminster, purporting to speak for a Remain community in Northern Ireland, a majority Remain community in Northern Ireland, uh, blustering nightly, his face in the face of the Catholic nationalist community in North Belfast, put the Arlene Foster remark, crocodile, against the backdrop of the behaviour of Nigel Dodge, presumptuously seeking to speak for the Catholic nationalist community in Northern Ireland, and that's what you get today. Okay, let me put it this way. Eamon, I just want to, because we're up against the clock here, but Alicia McCallion of Sinn Féin lost her seat in foil to Colm Eastwood of the SDLP. What do you think went wrong for Sinn Féin in the Derry area? Well, I've been observing for some time uh, developments within the, uh, the, 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 the Sinn Féin party. I've been drawing attention to it. I've been highlighting this constant uh, constant deification and glorification of IRA hunger strikers, um, uh, former members of the IRA who were killed, and all of that. This glorification, this Chucky Arla, Chucky Arla by Martina Anderson, people are exhausted with that. That's this, the soundtrack against which unionism measures Nash, uh, Sinn Fein. Now, then you get uh, the SDLP. The SDLP. Uh, set about trying to reform, reorganize themselves, and the pact which they did, uh, kicked off by Claire Bailey of the Greens, that pact, which really, no matter what way you look at it, was a head count, therein uh, is the outworking of that pact. And it was, it was uh, Eastwood who bought into that, promoted it from day one for this election, and he's been rewarded at every level because he, he took that step. Now, people say it, it never happened in the SDLP before. It did happen in the SDLP. When Bobby Sands was standing in Fabanisac, Tyrone, uh, uh, Austin Curry was put on the pressure to stand down by the leadership of the SDLP. So there's precedent there, and that's why Eastwood has been rewarded. And Claire Hanna, with 15,000 of a majority in South Belfast, it is 
staggering can that that result by by Claire Hanna. Okay, well, Eamon, I suppose the question everybody is asking is that uh, with the performance of Sinn Féin, the SDLP and the Alliance picking up Sylvia Herman's seat in North Down, does this this outcome move us closer to a border poll? There will be those who will turn up the heat now, who will advocate that uh, daily and push, push, push. I don't think I don't think that's going to be helpful. I think it's going to be potentially dangerous. We have a very debilitated unionist community this morning. We have a community which in the in the Protestant unionist uh, constituencies, which which feels very hurt and and very damaged, uh, betrayed by Boris Johnson. Absolutely betrayed by Boris Johnson. He can do what he likes now. He'll have his Irish border uh, down the his border down the Irish Sea. He'll have, he'll hit, he'll hit and strike tariffs and all around that will. There's a very little hope for unionism at this point in time. Uh, the last season for Manasseh Tyrone uh, went to Michel Gilrenew of uh, Sinn Féin. The Ulster unionists haven't won the seat. We're only we're within a matter of a year or two away from the 100 uh, centenary of, of the birth of unionism in Northern Ireland. The Ulster unionists may not even exist. They won't have any MPs certainly up at that point in time. It's a very debilitating time, this, for unionism. But they've reaped what they sowed, particularly the Democratic Unionist Party. Is the DUP effectively being punished because it didn't take what was called the backstop option, which gave farmers and businesses in Northern Ireland the best of both worlds uh, in the event of Brexit? It has to be a factor. As I said earlier, Geoffrey Don's seat was the safest seat in the United Kingdom and in Northern Ireland. And his, his majority has been slashed by about 7,000, by to 7,000. That is extraordinary. The alliance, the other biggest story, the key, the other big story, apart from Panucle, et cetera, in this election in Northern Ireland, Ken, is the ex- extraordinary success of the alliance party right across the country, in, in, in the middle of Ulster, in, 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 in the Lagan Valley, everywhere, north down, east down, the, the success of, of, of the Alliance Party under the leadership of Naomi Long. And it's interesting. People who've got credibility, people who speak with civility, are the people who are reaping the benefits in Northern Ireland at this point in time in this election. Okay, so we're looking at, if you like, a, a sort of gradual transitional change in the North, certainly the rise of the Alliance Party during the local elections in the summer. But do you think now that uh, with Boris Johnson pulling the rug from under the DUP that there's um, there's a new reality within the DUP that they've got to do business with Sinn Féin. The talks on uh, reassembling, uh, if you like, the Stormont Assembly commence, I think, on Monday. Do you think the DUP are coming round to the reality that the game is up? I'm sure they know it. I saw them on television last night. I saw the faces. I saw um, Edwin Poots on television for several hours last night, crestfallen. Their, their, their explanation and their expositions are pathetic at this moment in time as to why they haven't done as well as they did. My instinct is that the Democratic Unionist Party will be running for the hills, not the hill. Uh, coming up to this election, given that they were humiliated at Westminster, they were talking more and more about going back to Stormont and uh, 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 trying to appeal to the Sinn Féin, etc., to restore uh, the Assembly and Executive. I would say that they're so nervous now. They just haven't a clue with these results. 
how they're going to perform in uh, in any assembly elections because these assembly elections will be coming right on the heels of this general election and they've got such a battering in this general election so i would imagine they'll be very nervous about any uh, imminent uh, assembly election and given the growth of the of the uh, alliance and the rejuvenation of the SDLP the Alliance is now the third largest party in Northern Ireland. It is an extraordinary development what has happened here. Well, Eamon, just let me ask you this, because I know you spent your life on the steps of uh, Stormont in your days as a political correspondent with Downtown Radio. Based on what you're hearing on the ground, based on the outcome of the local elections during the summer, the fact, as I said, that Boris Johnson has pulled the rug from under the DUP, and the fact that the DUP lost two seats yesterday, how hopeful are you that the assembly at Stormont will be up and running in the in the new year? I'm not hopeful at all. Um, there's such a lack of trust between the Democratic Unionist Party and Sinn Féin. It's just extraordinary the mistrust that obtains there. And the Democratic Unionist is a very party is a very wounded party, a very hurt party, and trying to sell the package which obtained in February of 2018 to that, that wounded Democratic Unionist community, I think, would be very, very, very hard. And I think that there's a, an uncertainty. The, 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 the success of unionism and the Democratic Unionist Party historically has been built upon absolutism. It's, it's linked to Calvinism. Now, that absolutism which obtained, it no longer obtains. It's gone. It's debilitating. It's an undermining factor. And there are some raucous voices in Northern Ireland. They have a problem. At whom are they going to direct their anger? Are they going to take on Boris Johnson? There's a a potential period of instability here. We have something to our advantage. The weather's horrendous, and it's Christmas time. And that may give us all a breathing space here. Uh, And arising from that, the anger and the hurt and the sense of betrayal which is obtaining this morning can. Hopefully, by the time January comes around and the weather will probably be as bad and as miserable as it is here, a lot of that anger will have vaporized, etherized by then. So perhaps okay. uh, life will become more normal then. All right. Okay. Well, it sounds like very interesting days ahead uh, in Northern Ireland as uh, the DUP, if you like, uh, assesses where it all went wrong yesterday. That's uh, Eamon Malley, broadcaster, journalist, and one of the uh, leading observers on all things Northern Ireland, joining us on the line there from Belfast. Ken Murray on LMFM. Now, the Oireachtas Health Committee has been told that an elderly woman who holds a medical card is being pursued by the HSE to pay €4,000 after receiving treatment for septicemia in the private wing of a hospital. What makes the case somewhat worrying is that the HSE has employed a debt collector to retrieve the sum. The matter was raised by Sinn Féin TD, Louise O'Reilly, who joins me now. Louise, what exactly are the circumstances behind this story? Good morning, Ken, and good morning to your listeners. So uh, an elderly lady was admitted uh, to, to help Sorry, was under the care of a consultant and was told that she would need a hip operation. She was placed on a waiting list. Uh, she waited for so long, she ended up in extreme pain. 
her family, uh, who really didn't have the, the, the money book club together and uh, got took out a credit union loan as well and managed to get her operation done um, because she was in so much pain, managed to get her operation done privately. Um, fast forward then about a week and a half after she was admitted, uh, she was discharged from hospital. She developed some complications, um, some, some form of septicemia, and she was admitted to hospital again. And because she had been treated in the private wing of the hospital previously, she was brought into that private wing. Now, the woman didn't realise that she was being brought into the private wing because she was gravely ill at the time. And she wouldn't have known uh, she simply knew that she needed treatment. She got that treatment. She was discharged and subsequently she was sent a bill uh, from the hospital for treatment in the private hospital. She doesn't have the means to pay that bill um, and that debt has now been passed on to a debt collection agency. But I suppose it's worth noting that there are 29 hospitals in the state, uh, including the one uh, in uh, in Drogheda, who currently employ the services of debt collection agencies sometimes pursuing people for as little as 80 euros. Um, now, I, I mean, I, I understand that there are greater amounts as well, but the use of debt collection agencies, and I raised it directly with the Minister for Health and the Chief Executive of the HSE, I don't think that that's appropriate in a public health service. It, I, don't, I really don't think it's appropriate in a situation where, uh, as in this case, this woman has a, a medical card. Okay, I suppose the question has to be asked that when the diagnosis for septicemia was discovered, why was it decided she should be treated in uh, the private wing of the hospital rather than the public wing? Well, that's what I have asked the minister and uh, the chief executive to investigate. Um, because the woman was gravely ill. Obviously, she's not going to have control over where she is located. She was uh, she was seriously ill at the time, and they've undertaken to investigate that. I've passed the details on to them. They've undertaken to investigate how that happened. But the point that I was making to them, and, and the, the one that I have, have been making since I first raised this uh, nearly a year ago, is a debt collection agency does not uh, deal in compassion. They just deal in money. Now, the HSE is, a, the, is, is responsible for the provision of of public health services and I think you know it's a very different thing to deal with the HSE than it is to deal with a debt collection agency but when they pass that debt on they they simply pass the debt on it and the debt collection agency has no function other than to recover the money so bearing in mind that these people who incur the debt with the hospital do so because they're sick they don't they don't go to the hospital because they want to it's not a, a a pleasant experience it's a necessary experience for people and the death is incurred because of illness so when they are post illness and they are well, hopefully recovering they are now being pursued uh, for the death and i know that it was highlighted in the sun newspaper in august this year that there were several mistakes made by uh, debt collection agencies in some instances regarding the amount um, and indeed mistakes made by the HSE in prematurely passing on debts to debt collection agencies. So I suppose my point is when you take it out of the public service and you just put it with the debt collection agency, there's no space for compassion because that's not what that, that's not the business that they're in. They're only in the business of recovering the debt. But I think you can sometimes lose sight of the fact that the debt was incurred because of illness, not because of any... Uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't through choice in most sure, instances. Sure. You know, it's, it's because a person is sick. I'm just curious if there's any precedence for this. I mean, has it happened before where a patient has ended up in a private wing that should have actually ended up in a public wing, and the HSE issued, if you like, a bill in error? Yes, I, I have come across cases where that happened, and under normal circumstances, the uh, the bill. 
um, the bill can be can be addressed. The bill can be sometimes cancelled by the HSE if it is their mistake, uh, or they can come to an arrangement with the person. Um, but I think in this instance, the bill uh, was sent to a very elderly woman who became extremely distressed when she got the bill. And I know my, my, my grandmother is dead now, but I know that my grandmother, she would never like to go asleep on a bill. If a bill arrived, she would like to pay, you know, as, as, sure, as much as sure. she possibly could. And I think, you know, particularly, not, not exclusively for older persons, but I think particularly uh, for older persons that, you know, a, a bill will weigh very heavy on you. And this woman uh, panicked when she got the bill and uh, she was extremely distressed by uh, by receiving this. And I do know of cases where uh, the HSE have recognised that they have made an error. So a person with a medical card is entitled uh, to treatment without charge to themselves. And if the decision is made to put them into the private hospital, well, then that, that'll be, that bill should be settled by the National Treatment Purchase Fund. You know, there's obviously paperwork sure. and stuff to be completed. But in this instance, that's not what happened. And it appears that the woman was put into the private wing of the hospital simply because she had been treated yeah, in the, uh, uh, the hospital originally. Sure. Are the HSE saying anything about this? What they've said is they're going to investigate it. Um, this was at the Joint Directors Committee uh, on Health and I indicated and I have done, uh, I did so immediately actually, that I would send on the details to them. I've asked them to look into this case and, uh, and I'm happy to report back on any results that I get. But I do think there has to be scope uh, for compassion and understanding, but also recognition of the fact that the woman has a medical card and shouldn't um, have to uh, have to pay this debt. But also the fact that she only ended up in the private wing of the hospital because her family club together took out a credit union loan because they couldn't watch their elderly mother in pain while she waited on a waiting list like so many hundreds of thousands of other people to uh, to get the treatment that she deserves. And she has a medical card, she's entitled to the treatment, uh, but unfortunately she was left waiting on a waiting list so long that her family had to take the decision to uh, to scrape together the money sure. to get their mother out of pain. Uh, Louise, just on a separate story, I don't know if you're up to date on this particular story. Um, children apparently are being treated for cancer at Crumlin Children's Hospital apparently are having their chemotherapy sessions postponed because of staff shortages. How serious is this? This is extremely serious. Um, I spoke with one of your researchers this morning and uh, I checked my uh, emails and I have had some correspondence from parents in uh, that they've been advised that their kids uh, will not get the chemotherapy that they've been told if they just don't have the staff. I mean, it, it, when I when I say this is a new low, I really mean it chemotherapy uh, for sick kids because of a staffing crisis. We know uh, that the, there is a hiring embargo in place in the HSE. I mean, they, they won't call it an embargo, but they're not hiring staff um, at the moment. And I think that the, the minister needs to intervene and ensure that staff are hired. I mean, you simply can't imagine those parents. They have kids that have cancer that require chemotherapy and to, to turn up and to be told that uh, that they may not be able to continue a course of chemotherapy or one of the sessions will have to be uh, deferred or rescheduled simply because they don't have enough staff. I, as a parent, um, and indeed a grandparent myself, I just find that so frightening. I mean, parents want to do the absolute best for their kids. Of course they do. Um, and it's traumatic enough, I would imagine, for, certainly from the correspondence I got, it's traumatic enough for parents having to deal with uh, critically ill children. But to be told that there's not staff there for uh, the chemotherapy that they require and that the sessions have to be uh, rescheduled or postponed. I just, 
I don't know how they are dealing with that devastating news, um, but I will be calling on the Minister today, and I'll do so here, to intervene to instruct the hospital to lift the recruitment embargo and to bring staff in as a matter of urgency to ensure right. that this treatment can be carried out. OK, we'll leave it there. That's uh, Louise O'Reilly, Sinn Féin spokesperson on health, uh, joining us uh, from Dublin. OK, more to come. We'll take a break. Ken Murray on LMFM. As I said, if you want to get in touch, our text number is 086-1800-658. Now, the cost of installing a 17-tonne printer in Leinster House has now risen to just over €2 million following a collection of errors with its installation. Yesterday, the clerk of the Dáil, Peter Finnegan, told the Oireachtas Public Accounts Committee that the issue of the height of the room never came up when it was decided that this expensive machine had to be purchased. It all sounds as if the powers that be didn't engage in any advance planning. Sinn Féin TD for Loud and East Mead, Imelda Munster, was at the committee yesterday and she joins me now. Uh, Imelda, before I get into the printer and the mysteries of the way Leinster House works, I just want to talk to you about the outcome of the British general election and the way things uh, unfolded in the uh, the North last night. Um, you gained a seat, you lost a seat. Uh, will Sinn Féin still continue to push for a border poll? Well, firstly, it was a good election for Sinn Féin. Um, John Finucane being elected in North Belfast, Ken, was an historic uh, win. Uh, it meant that Nigel Dodds, um, the DUP, uh, he's the DUP leader in Westminster. So the, the fact that he was defeated goes beyond his role as uh, the DUP uh, leader in Westminster. Um, that's... The, the, the fact that that seat has never been held by a nationalist before, and it was it was once held by Edward Carson, as we know, the father of unionism. So that was um, a historic win. And then uh, Michelle Gildernew for for Manasite Tyrone regained um, in the early hours this morning of uh, Bobby Sands' seat in in that constituency. So we we lost the one in Derry, but that was always going to be. Um, a battle, and we knew that to to uh, to hold on to that because the SDLP, you know, and as you know yourself, John Hume, formerly had that seat, so it was always going to be a battle. But it's um, the whole election itself in the six counties is historic because now, for the first time ever, nationalists have the majority seats. Uh, Sinn Féin has our seven seats, and the SDLP have two, and Unionists have Unionism has eight seats, and I think. Um, I think it was, if you go back to 1923, when there were 13 seats, 11 of those were held by unionists. So I think the, um, the nationalists kind of came to, nationalist people came together, particularly in North Belfast and South Belfast as well. But um, it was the Remain voters too, and the, you know, the, the threat of Brexit and all of that, but it's certainly an historic election and a really good election for Sinn Féin. Okay, I mean, I could uh, talk to you all morning about uh, the outcome of the election, uh, but I just wanted to get your initial reaction. Let's get back to this uh, mysterious printer and the strange way Leinster House does its business. Uh, Talk us through Peter Finnegan's explanations yesterday as to why this printer has cost so much money for the hard-pressed Irish taxpayer. Well, firstly, um, that was the second letter we'd received from uh, Peter Finnegan, who's the accounting officer for the Houses of the Oireachtas, and it didn't it didn't answer any questions, you know. So yesterday morning at the PAC, the earlier PAC meeting, I had proposed that he 
come in to us in the afternoon, you know, to answer questions. Now, he he's given his answers and he admitted that mistakes were made, but it's like, here we go again type of thing. You know, there were key issues that stood out a mile. Firstly, they didn't have an architect on board from the beginning, right? Now, can you just imagine that with that sort of cost involved? They didn't contact the uh, the OPW until after the contract was signed. Another crazy situation. Um, it it turns out that I asked him about. Um, he had in his the the report that he second report he'd furnished us with yesterday. He'd said he stood over the fact that the business case was sound. And I questioned him on that. How could you possibly say that your initial business case is was sound and is still sound, despite the fact that you you know it it turned out to be useless because they had to knock down walls, they had to heighten ceilings, they had to change the printing rooms, and with an overrun of seven hundred thousand. And the other thing was, he knew about the overrun in July when he came before the pack, and he never said it. And you know, there's an onus on on accounting officers when they come before the the public accounts committee to be forthcoming with information. He knew that overrun was there and he never mentioned it. And the response that he'd given was that he he wasn't asked that specific question. But, you know, he's a responsibility to, to give as much information as possible. And obviously that was in the public interest because it was it amounted to an overrun of almost 700,000. Well, now, We're now looking at a printer that's cost, a printing press actually, that's costing over 2 million euro. Right, well Peter Finnegan told the committee that a note in the tender document was actually overlooked by civil servants. Now what does this say about... I think the term is the due diligence applied in its purchase and about the competence of the civil servants who engage in tendering and procurement for the House. Well, it's, it's in my opinion, it's a slapdash approach, you know, and careless beyond belief. But it's always um, easy when you're spending somebody else's money and not your own. Now, you know, even if you think if you're getting some sort of job done in your house, you'll check. The first thing you do is check the measurements. But it comes back to, in my opinion, that because they, um, they had money left over in a three-year budgetary cycle, that they decided to go on a shopping spree rather than hand that money back to the, the central fund. Uh, you know, the, So it was a rush job from start to finish. And they wanted to, if you like, blow that money rather than hand it back. And this was the result of it. A printing press that now is costing the taxpayer over €2 million euro and 700000 of that is an overspend due to this kind of slapdash. OK, can, can I put a point to you? Um, Fianna Fáil TD, Mark McSharry, who's on the Public Accounts, uh, Public Accounts Committee, uh, made the point a few weeks ago that when these type of errors occur in the public service, there is no sanction or punishment whatsoever. I mean, if this happened in the private sector, people would be sacked. But it never seems to happen in the public sector. And we've had errors in the past. I think of the PPARs. Um, I think of overruns on various computer systems, uh, electronic voting was a, if you like, a, a wasted amount of money that came to nothing. Isn't it time for a new sanction regime to be put in place whereby when civil servants mess up, they pay a price? Well, of course, everybody has to be accountable, you know, and 
that's why it was important. I felt it was important and that's why I proposed that he come in yesterday to account for, for everything that's happened, you know. And But every time, Ken, something of this nature happens and it's raised, the attitude is, well, it's done, let's move on. You know, and the purpose of the Public Accounts Committee um, is to hold these people to account, you know, and to have more accountability. And that's my role along with others. On the, the, and we, we're going to have to keep an eye on this and more oversight. But for, in order for, for um, people to be held to account, the, that's, the government would have to ensure that that happens, you know. But certainly, I mean, you had, look, you had the National Children's Hospital in a couple of weeks ago, the crazy overspend on this, and now a printer. But it just shows the attitude, oh, we've money left over in our three-year budget cycle. And because it's not their money, so easy to spend somebody else's money, you know, taxpayers' money. They decided to go on what I refer to it as a shopping spree and made a complete and utter hames of it to the detriment of 700,000 less money, you know, of taxpayers' money being um, blown, literally. Sure. Um, uh, uh, because they got everything. Sure. Everything. But, but I want to ask you this because... Um, <laughs> I had Fergus O'Dowd on this programme, I think it was Monday, and uh, there was a 55 uh, million debt in the FAI, and the politicians were sort of getting the blame. And I suppose where I'm going with this question is, how damaging is it for the political system that when the civil servants mess up, you people have to answer the questions when, in fact, you people are not at fault? Well, that's it too. But, I mean... you know, it's the houses of the Oireachtas and uh, Mr. Finnegan is the accounting officer for the ha- for the houses of the Oireachtas. But it still comes back, yes, and w- we were asking the questions yesterday, trying to get to the root of it and try, you know, like I am extremely, still extremely annoyed at the fact that when he was in in July that he didn't see fit to furnish PAC with that information, that he knew there was a cost overrun and the excuse he gave was that, oh, that particular question wasn't asked. I mean, that's just not good enough. You know, it's not good enough. And I, th- I think myself, he'd hoped um, that he wouldn't be before the pack, that he wouldn't be forced to explain, you know, and, and give answers. Um, but, you know, again, it's up to government to, to ensure that everybody is held to account and that there are, there are sanctions because it is tax okay, very briefly Amelia yeah. business to, to blow money like that you know and just from pure carelessness yeah. OK, well, look, uh, as the fellow says, we get the message. So uh, keep the uh, keep the heat on those uh, while spending uh, civil servants and hopefully the taxpayer will get value for money uh, in the months and years to come. Ken Murray on LMFM. Now, as I say that uh, the outcome of the British general election um, is causing a lot of people to scratch their heads wondering where we go from next. There were those who believe that if the uh, Labour Party was able to form a government in Britain, the might be another referendum to give the British people, if you like, another chance to perhaps change their minds on leaving the EU, but it's not to be and in all likelihood the UK will leave the European Union at the end of next month. What does this mean for people in Ireland? Well, to find out more I'm joined on the line by uh, MEP, Fine Gael MEP for this region uh, a former uh, presenter here on LMFM and indeed uh, also the Vice President or I think it's uh, Vice President of the European Parliament, Mairead McGuinness. Good morning, Mairead. Um Can I ask you, what does this all mean now that uh, the British people have spoken? 
Well, I suppose what it means is that the divorce will come through on the 31st of January, if not earlier. I mean, it's very clear from the majority that um, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has got in this election that he can deliver, as he said, he would get Brexit done. Uh, so there's even speculation that there could be a vote next week in the House of Commons um, to, you know, ratify the withdrawal agreement and that then this European Parliament would have to do likewise and then it would all be wrapped up by the end of January. What it means, I suppose, is that we definitely know the divorce has happened. We don't know, though, how the future will pan out because stage two is sitting down with the UK, EU negotiators talking about the future and the future will deal with every single aspect of trade, regulations, you name it. And there's no certainty as to exactly what Prime Minister Boris Johnson will want from that. Europe wants a close relationship, but that is not defined yet. Um, And then I suppose the timetable of all of this, can it be done by the end of 2020? Many people predict it cannot be done. If it's not done, could we have a hard Brexit at that stage? Or if it um, isn't done, will we have an extra period of transition? So we have certainty on one issue, but uncertainty on many others. Now, I suppose from a a political point of view here in Brussels, people are are, are not pleased, but they are certainly, if you like, happy that the uncertainty over the withdrawal agreement will end soon. Um, Then we have to worry about the future. I think for the European Parliament, we're going to lose quite a a large number of MEPs because they were re-elected in the last elections in May. And they will be leaving, we're not sure when, maybe the day after, the 1st of February. We we have yet to clarify that. And then some, there's two members elected from Ireland who have not taken their seats and they will be in a position to take their seats. My colleague Deirdre Clune um, from the South constituency and Barry Andrews from the Dublin constituency. So there'll be a lot of change even in personnel here in the Parliament. Uh, But I think when you opened there, you said that some had hoped or perhaps predicted that there might be a possibility of a government that would have a second referendum. I think it was a long shot, really. And those who had that hope, and and many of the, the Remain colleagues here in the Parliament were, I suppose, crossing their fingers that that might happen. The reality is now very clear. I think that the British public, uh, not that I can speak of of what they actually voted, but it seems to me that they were, I suppose, grown weary with Brexit um, hanging over their heads since 2016 and gave a a large majority to Boris Johnson to get Brexit done. And that was his entire slogan for the campaign. Well, um, as things go, as I understand it, the real hard work actually begins on the 1st of February when this uh, trade deal has to commence negotiation and so on. I mean, the expectation is that the trade deal will be done at the end of December next year. But uh, reading between the lines, this could go on for a number of years. Is that something that the EU institutions are prepared for? Well, I suppose there's several issues about that. I mean, both sides would like to get it done as quickly as we can, but I, I don't, don't think that the UK realise how complicated it will be because usually in trade agreements, parties are coming together. In this case, the UK will be pulling away from, so around um, regulations and rules across all sectors, the UK has certainly indicated that it wants to be different than the European Union. So the, the complexity of the negotiations will depend on how different Boris Johnson wants to 
be uh, in trade than he is today. Because remember that we, as an, uh, part, Ireland is part of the European Union, trade freely with the United Kingdom. A lot of our agricultural goods and many other things uh, go to the UK and indeed we buy from them. For the future, when they leave um, the European Union, we will have to have new arrangements in place. And I think, you know, there is a, a suggestion that this will all be easy because we're partners now. In fact, it's more difficult because we're partners now. When we were doing a trade deal with Canada, they weren't part of the European Union. So we sat down with a, a blank sheet, if you like, and then worked towards common ground. In this case, we are on common ground and we have to work towards separation. So that's not, in my kind of, uh, you know, frame, that hasn't been done before. Um, so there are two issues then. Will Boris Johnson, with this large majority, be emboldened by it and want to be very tough in the negotiations? Or will he feel that he has such a comfortable majority in the House of Commons that he can go for a softer Brexit? And I suppose um, if anyone has the answer to that, um, you know, put them on a postcard because none of us know his mind yet. I dare say over the coming days that will crystallise and, and he will clarify what his position is. But there's no doubt he has won a huge majority. Um, his campaign worked, uh, even the, the comedy parts of it. with sure. the of actually and all of those things it seems to have you know struck a chord M- with, uh, Maria, I just want to ask you a question about the, the practicalities of the British exit from the European Union once the British leave which I think officially is December the 31st 2020 it means there's going to be less money in the EU kitty and this will affect things like subsidies to farmers fishermen various institutions in uh, the Irish Republic that depend on EU money I mean what sort of law are we looking at in terms of financial transfers from Brussels to Ireland? Well, just to complicate that further, we're coming to the end of this financial period. So the UK will pay all its dues up to the end of 2020. And the leaders, in fact, today in Brussels are looking at trying to agree the figures for the next seven years uh, post-2020. So there's no answer to that question. But it's very clear that with the UK gone, the contributions will change. It's not to say that they may that they will be contributing nothing, because if they want um, our markets, they may have to pay to access them in insofar as they may want to use our chemical agencies for regulation or our, um, the, on medical devices they may want to use the European Medicines Agency for drugs and all of those things. So it's not clear that they won't pay anything, but it's not clear how much they might pay. And then we have a difficulty amongst the remaining 27. There are four, um, as they're called, the frugal four, four countries that don't want to increase their contributions. Others, like Ireland, have said we will increase. So your question is a very, very good one, but there is no answer to that. And there's going to be some, I suppose, discussion today and what there was yesterday as to how countries will contribute in a time when the UK is no longer part of the European Union. But my guess is that Europe will possibly demand that the UK contributes some money Sure. Let, let, let me ask you this, Mairead. Um I presume the upper echelons of the EU Commission and those who run the European Parliament have got over, the, if you like, the shock of the June 2016 referendum. But now that they've sort of become used to it, is there still a sense of anger that the UK is leaving the EU and I won't say is messing up the EU project, but is sending out all the wrong signals? 
No, in fact, I don't think there was shock. I mean, I think there was more a bit of upset and anger when it happened. I, I mean, I wasn't shocked, I have to say. I sadly felt that the UK were going to vote, uh, vote leave and, and that was the outcome and others in the Parliament felt the same. In terms of anger, I don't think people are angry at all now. I mean, we have so many other problems to solve that Brexit is, is just one of them. And I suppose now we have a little more certainty as we moved into 2020. So no, I, I don't think there's a sense of anger. And in terms of its impacting on other countries and what they might think about the European Union, there has been no sign of any other country saying, what a good idea, we leave too. It's not to say that it could happen at some stage because the treaties allow for that. But for now, I think there's a solidity around the table of the 27, especially now if you look at the climate targets that we're talking about, if you look at the migration challenge, no country can deal with these on their own. And, you know, I think when things settle down with the UK, they're going to have to be part of our conversation. And to some extent, we might have this parallel um, arrangement where the EU 27 sit down and talk to each other, and then we have to sit down and talk to the United Kingdom. So I think the complexity will have been delivered by Brexit at a time when the UK wanted less complexity, because even around security issues, the UK cannot pull away from, from European security measures because they're part and partial of it. So no, I don't think people are angry here. I think that, you know, we will go into Christmas, I mean, a little bit downcast because we're losing some good people from the parliament here but look we have to move to the future the british people have decided twice at this stage and just things have to happen now a vote in the house of commons a vote in this parliament but we will have but, a debate here just, too and it yeah, won't get 100 percent support sure just finally uh Mairead, and very very briefly do you think the eu as an institution is is it now a weaker one well, it's certainly was stronger if the UK had stayed in. I think um, it's only weaker if we don't hold together. And I, I suppose I don't see the European Union as an institution. The European Union is the voluntary coming together of 27 member states who believe they're better off working together, which is not a bad concept. Um, and then we need all of the structures to make sure that we do work together. The UK has decided they're better off on their own. And I suppose we all wish the UK luck, but we don't want their departure to harm us. And I I dare say, and I hope that they have the same view. And if we both go into the negotiations in the future with that in mind, then maybe things will not be as difficult as they might appear today. Okay, Mairead McGuinness, Fine Gael MEP and first Vice President of the European Parliament. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Your comments will be coming up very shortly with Marie Cairns, but before that, we'll take a break. Ken Murray on LMFM. Now, keep those texts coming. Our number is 086-1800-658. Marie Cairns will be joining us shortly with your comments on the stories we've been running this morning. Now, moving on, Alcohol Action Ireland has called on the Taoiseach to implement legislation passed last year, which would see the introduction of minimum unit pricing for alcohol. Abuse of alcohol is causing an average of seven deaths per year, and many people believe that minimum pricing can't come in quick enough. Eunan McKinney is Head of Communications and Advocacy with Alcohol Action Ireland, and he joins me now. Uh, for fellas like me who don't go to the pub a lot and actually don't drink at all, would you just explain what minimum pricing would mean for the average pub goer? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on, Ken. Um, the, for the average pub goer, minimum unit pricing will make no difference to their engagement and consumption uh, with alcohol because the minimum unit pricing, what it does is it ensures that products that are available in the off-trade, the cheap, strong alcohol that's available in the off-trade, in your supermarkets, your corner stores, your off-licenses, they won't be able to be sold beneath a certain price. Um, 
And whereas in a pub, what you do, what you have is you have a much higher price for alcohol, and that's simply reflective of the publican's cost base, which is obviously reflective of rent rates, um, staff, etc. All those other uh, aspects that are that are involved in the price of alcohol. So there'll be no difference. It'll make no impact on people who currently go and enjoy alcohol in a public house. So we're talking about what, off-licenses in supermarkets? Primarily, yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. So at the moment, what we see in the marketplace is a splurge of heavy discounting of alcohol um, running into a Christmas period. And probably somewhat in advance of perhaps the introduction of minimum pricing that the alcohol industry has taken an opportunity to have a, a last hurrah perhaps in relation to shifting a significant level of inc- a significant level of product over these months and these weeks of, of the Christmas period. I presume this is all designed if you like to discourage young people from buying alcohol and getting hooked on alcohol is that the case? Yeah, the principal point here is that we have a piece of legislation which was fought over over six or seven years to be brought in and uh, to be enacted by the Iraqis, which it was. The Public Health Alcohol Bill was debated for six or seven years. It was enacted late last year, 2018. It contains a series of measures which essentially seek to address the price, the availability and the promotion of alcohol. And the endeavour behind that is to try and bring about a modest reduction in alcohol consumption across the whole of the population. Um, because what we see is, and just to go back to what you said earlier, it's actually seven deaths per day is what, what is occurring in Ireland. Oh, sorry, my in, apologies. Yes. In relation to alcohol. Um, so we have a situation whereby, you know, over 10% of the beds in our public system are related to people who have alcohol-related illnesses. Um, of those seven people that are dying every day, you know, a third of those are related to alcohol incidents. People who simply go out for a night, drink too much, you know, end up at, at, a, at a party, house party, something of that nature, fall, injure themselves, and you know, some people re- regrettably don't come home at all. So these are these are the real impacts that we're witnessing in relation to our deeply corrosive relationship that we have with alcohol. Sure, but can I ask you this? Yeah, Yeah, can I ask you this, Unit? I mean, what evidence do you have that if minimum pricing on alcohol is introduced in supermarkets and off-licenses and so on, that this will actually discourage young people from buying drink? Well, I wouldn't exclusively say it will be discouraging young people. I think it'll, 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 it'll endeavour to ensure that the whole population will, dri- will drive, will be driven towards less purchases of alcohol. And so, in 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 the context of minimum pricing, which is a recognised policy instrument in relation to the price of alcohol, we've seen it introduced in places such as Scotland and. Scotland introduced it in the early half of 2018, and whilst the data is early, it's only a year in place in the in Scotland. We have seen nearly an eight percent reduction in alcohol-related sales, um, and that's that's the key impact. And in Northern Territory in Australia, they introduced a similar measure around minimum unit pricing as well, and they too have seen significant reductions in alcohol consumption. And more importantly, what they have seen is in their in their emergency departments, they have seen nearly a fifty percent reduction in acute alcohol consumption episodes. Sure, isn't there the da- are, 
Yeah, but isn't there the These danger? Are the real outcomes, you know. Yeah, sure. Isn't there the danger that if youngsters have a few quid that they either get from their parents or they have a weekend job or whatever, <laughs> that if minimum pricing comes in and they find alcohol too expensive uh, to purchase, they may, if you like, turn their focus in other directions and may try substances that, in fact, uh, might be more severe than alcohol. Well, I think that that's a possibility, but I think what is important says that the level of affordability of alcohol in our stores is exceptional at the moment. And what we're seeking to do is just interfere a little with that price, to to nudge it uh, a little bit further in the context of trying to reduce, uh, induce a a modest reduction in the consumption. So it's like we're talking here about 6, 7, 8% reduction in consumption. So the price at those you know, what people understand alcohol to be available in the supermarkets are premium products largely. So your, you know, your standard beer products and brands that people would be familiar with, um, none of those are going to be impacted by minimum unit price because all of those are sold at a premium cost, reflective of the money that's invested in the marketing of the brand. It's the cheap, strong alcohol, the own brands of alcohol, the strong beers, uh, that they are what's going to be targeted by minimum unit pricing. People who enjoy wine, for example, will see largely no difference in the price of wine. In fact, they'll see no difference in the price of wine. Premium branded spirits, they'll see no difference in the price of those because they're all sold way above and beyond what is the minimum unit pricing. Well, I suppose the question is, why do you think the government is delaying the introduction of this legislation? Well, I think there's been a number of factors that have been involved. Obviously, you've been talking today about the election, and obviously the you know the context of Brexit. There's a, there's a, there's obviously a border dimension in relation to cross border shopping, which has been you know a concern for the Department of Finance, certainly in relation to you know potentially um, stimulating. So, if minimum unit price was introduced here and not in Northern Ireland, that there may be some footfall that might arise from that. But our view is fundamentally is that. There has always been some difficulty within government about interfering with the price uh, of, of, of the product. However, this is now the law of the land and the government, you know, have to implement this. It is passed, it is enacted by the, by the Oireachtas uh, and therefore they need to now just proceed with this. There's, you know, there, we're no longer in the space for having an ideological debate about why we should be doing this. That debate has been had. We now need to move to go on to protect people's lives. And have you lobbied the government to inquire why there, why there is a delay in introducing the legislation? And if so, what is the government saying? What the government are saying is that they have this, this concern around the uncertainty of Brexit. But as we know, I think it's pretty clear after the overnight events that Brexit is largely going to be become a certainty uh, over the next, certainly within the next four to six weeks. And so... We would we would be encouraging the government now to continue with their with their actions now to move to enact and to implement the minimum unit pricing as quickly as possible. And uh, I think the indications from government, certainly this week, are beginning to beginning to recognise that fact and to say that they will probably move in January. There are a number of, if you like, publicans who are TDs. Do you think they may have some sinister hand uh, at work behind the scenes to try and delay this? No, I, I, I think that, that if you ask the Vintners Association, um, you know, they're largely in favour of this action because they, you know, over the last decade, two decades or so, we've seen a massive shift, you know, from what was 
the majority of people consuming alcohol in public houses to now consuming alcohol in the home. Nearly, you know, three quarters of the alcohol that's consumed in the country is consumed, having been purchased in the off trade and, and consumed at home. So this, these are, the publicans are very keen to see this measure uh, readjust the market because you know they they, they simply can't compete uh, with you know if you're trying to sell a a pint of lager for for four euros or four fifty or whatever it will be, you know, they just can't compete with the guy who's selling it in the corner shop for less than a euro. And, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, whether they're shopkeepers or supermarket owners, they want as many uh, people coming through the door as possible because if youngsters buy a can of beer, they might also buy a bar of chocolate as well. I mean, isn't there a concern for for those individuals? And, in fact, their, their revenue and their income may actually drop as a result of this. Well, there, there, there's no question about it that the endeavour around the immunity price is to ensure that less alcohol is sold. There's no, no there's no, I, I make no apologies for that. That's precisely what has endeavoured to be done here. The reason we're doing that is so that we can protect the public health, health and well-being of our citizens. And, you know, the context of interfering with the price of alcohol is precisely to bring about that outcome. Okay, we'll leave it there. That's uh, Eunan McKinney, who is the Head of Communications and Advocacy with Alcohol Action Ireland. Coming up very shortly, Marie Kearns will be giving us your comments and reaction to the stories we've been running this morning. Ken Murray on LMFM. Now, an asylum seeker who claimed to be fighting for ISIS when he fatally stabbed a man in Dundalk last year has been found not guilty of murder by reason of insanity. Egyptian native Mohamed Morai had been charged with the murder of 24-year-old Japanese man Yosuke Sasaki at Long Avenue Dundalk on January the 3rd, 2018. Owen Reynolds is a reporter with the Ireland International News Agency. He was in the Central Criminal Court and he joins me on the line right now. Good morning, Owen. Good morning, Ken. Um, Talk us through the background to this story and what was said in court. Well, the background is, as you just rightly said there, Mohamed Morai is an Egyptian national who, it appears, uh, came to Dundalk via Northern Ireland uh, in December 2017. He had come to the attention of the police service of Northern Ireland before he travelled to Dundalk. And while he was in Dundalk on about January 1st, the Gardaí actually picked him up and brought him to Dublin where they processed an asylum application for him. Uh, it appears that he came to Europe on a boat and somehow managed to make his way to the UK um, to Northern Ireland and then obviously as I say, to Dundalk. So following that, it was following the process of his asylum application in Dublin. He came back to Dundalk on January 2nd. And on January 3rd is when this incident occurred where he stabbed uh, a Japanese man by the name of Yosuke Sasaki. He stabbed him to death uh, in what appears to have been simply a random attack on the street in Dundalk at Long Avenue. Um, they two, the two men did not know one another. Uh, there was no link between them. And it appears that from the evidence that we heard in trial, that Mr. Morai um, was a suffering from paranoid schizophrenia. This was the evidence given by two separate consultant psychiatrists from the Central Mental Hospital. They said that he had paranoid schizophrenia, and at the time um, he just he was suffering acute psychosis and did not uh, know that what he was doing was wrong and was unable to refrain from what he did. And as a result, that's why he was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Now, I believe uh, some of the family statements from uh, Mr. Sasaki's family were were quite poignant. Yeah, absolutely. They were um, very eloquent uh, in their grief. 
And a number of them actually travelled to Ireland from Japan for the three-day trial. And there, there was a lot of emotion throughout the whole trial <clears throat> when they heard details of the manner in which their son, uh, their brother, had died. So uh, the, the statements were read out to the court by a Garda, but um, the among them was the statement of uh, Yosuke's father, whose name is Akifusa. Apologies if I'm not pronouncing that correctly. So he described his son as um, having been adored and grew up lavished with love and affection. And how he described how he became a very popular young boy and retained many of those friends as, as a young adult. Uh, he was a keen basketball player and he earned the respect of his peers through that. He actually he said that he looked looking upon him as a parent, he was a son I could be both envious and proud of. He filled me with immense pride. He described him as a remarkable and popular young man. But he also described how he wasn't particularly academically gifted. And um, he struggled in Japan where academic uh, um, merit is, is considered above most other things. Uh, he, he struggled a little bit with that. So he decided to he would move to Europe, that he would learn English, move to Europe and, and work hard here. He, he met a girl called Kerry Vincent, an English girl, through an online forum. Miss Vincent, it appears, wanted to learn Japanese. He was trying to learn English. And through that relationship, they then sparked up a, a relationship. And he decided that he wanted to move to the UK to be with her. Now, he had difficulties getting a visa to the UK. So in the end, he ended up coming to Dublin, where he studied for a time. He studied and worked in Dublin and then got a job in the National Pen Factory in Dundalk, which allowed him to extend his visa and stay longer and also then it seems that they, himself and Miss Vincent planned to live together in in Ireland and set up home here. Um, so, that, I mean, that was the, the, the background to him. But his father also described how, you know, the, the, the terrible longing that the family is left with now that their son has been taken from them. He said that he loved, the boy loved living in Ireland and that uh, the people he met um, showed him such kindness that he had a wonderful time in Ireland and wanted to return here to be with Kerry. But he also described how um, he regrets that he never shared a drink with his son. He never got to sit, he said, and uh, drink and reminisce with my son. And he said, that will never happen. He said, Yosuke is no longer there. My son, whose presence I used to take for granted, is here no more. And I have an overwhelming sense of loss. He talked about his, his yearning to see his son once more. Who he described as his pride and joy, a boy who grew up to be a fine young man with a gentle heart. He said that if there is a God, I resent him. He asked, why did Yosuke have to die? His life was cut short. He still had what would have been an amazing life ahead of him. Um, He said he cried so much that the tears blind his vision, but he also said that he he doesn't want to continue to feel like this because Yosuke wouldn't have wanted it. He said his son would have scolded him for being like this, and he begged to see his son once more. He said, I want to feel him and feel his warmth and see his smiling face. Now, the boy's sister also gave uh, a statement, again, very passionately spoke about how much she misses her brother, how she is left feeling forlorn and miserable as, uh, as having been deprived of their future together. But she was also quite angry about the circumstances of his death. She wanted to point out that Mr. Morai was an illegal resident in Ireland who had come to the attention of police previously. Um, she described him as a mentally unstable foreign national whose origin was unknown, and she questioned why such a man would have been allowed to live in the town. Um, she further complained that uh, Mr. Morai's human rights were protected, whereas her brother had been deprived of his, even though he had done nothing wrong. 
and she described this whole situation situation as infuriating and forever unforgivable. There were other statements too. I don't know if you want me to go through all of them. Kerry Vincent spoke, you know, she was um, also very emotional throughout the whole trial. She said she had been beyond happy with Yosuke and that losing the man that she loves in such a horrific way has impacted every aspect of her life and every person in her life. She said she had nightmares for months after it happened. She couldn't concentrate on anything in her life and even her 21st birthday she described as a sad and lonely time. Um, she talked about their plans to make their home in Ireland, something that they never got the chance to do. And she said he wasn't, Yosuke wasn't just her partner, but her best friend, and she will miss him forever. Well, now, Judge uh, Carmel Stewart uh, remanded uh, Mohammed Morai to the Central Mental Hospital. Uh, did the family issue any statements after the verdict? Um, the Yeah, I mean... The, the the statements that have gone through there were all delivered in court once the verdict had been heard. Um, as I've said, they, they, there was some anger about what had uh, transpired, the nature of it. Um, uh, um, it was Shiori, actually, yes, who said that she wanted justice to be uh, to be done in a, in a proper manner. And she said, our wish is for the per- perpetrator of the crime to be brought to justice in a proper manner. Now, um, they did not make any statement outside the court. Uh, but what, what, what the procedure now is in relation to Mr. Morai, that he he has been in the central mental hospital since he was arrested and charged with the murder of um, Yosuke Sasaki. He has been in, in the central mental hospital since then. That would have been January 3rd, 2018, or, or around about that time. Okay, so well, look... There. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, Owen, we're going to have to leave it there, but uh, you, you've given a, a very... Um, a sad account of uh, a very sad story that happened in Dundalk last year. So I want to thank you very much indeed uh, for your contribution this morning. That's uh, Owen Reynolds, their reporter with the Ireland International uh, News Agency. Now, uh, we're moving to a story in RD in Louth. Uh, a man has gone missing, Mr. Daniel McMahon, 41 years of age. I'm joined on the line now by Ronan Carey of uh, RD Garda Station. Uh, good morning, Inspector Carey. What can you tell us about this? I think we've lost Ronan Carey. We'll try and come back to Ronan Carey. In the meantime, we'll take a break. Ken Murray on LMFM. Now, as I was saying there before the break, a man has gone missing in Dundalk. His name is Daniel McMahon. He's 41 years of age. I'm joined on the line now by Inspector Ronan Carey of RD Garda Station. Uh, Ronan, what can you tell us? Uh, I suppose just to correct you there, Daniel went missing from his home there where he resides with his mum in Seven Ratgori in RD. So he's, he's, he's residing in the RD area um, and he went, he's, his family reported him only the other day on the um, on the 11th of December, but he having been last sighted by them on the 29th of November, which is 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 13 days or so ago at this stage. So that's, that's, the, that's the current position with, with Daniel. So he's his family are concerned for him, um, and they are anxious to know uh, where he is, uh, and they're anxious to reach out there to the public in County Loud or anybody that may know uh, where Daniel is at, at the present time. And what can you tell us in relation to his appearance at the time that he went missing? Yes, so when, when Daniel was last seen, uh, Daniel, I'll just describe him there, Daniel is, is six foot two in, in height, so he's a tall He's a tall individual. Um, he's described as having tight red hair um, with a beard. And he was last seen uh, wearing a grey jacket. Um, he had blue jeans, 
uh, and grey runners, and we think a black baseball cap also. Now that's that's what we believe. Uh, that's a, that's the a description of Daniel when he was last sighted by his family. And I think we have we've a, we've a photograph up on the LMFM uh, site as well, which may assist um, uh, members of the public if they wish to check that as well. So that's that's the description of Daniel. Okay, well, I suppose uh, if people want to get a good look at Daniel, then uh, the best thing to do is to go on the LMFM website. And as you say, he's 41 years of age and he went missing on Friday, the 29th of November. We we wish you well in uh, trying to locate Daniel McMahon. That's Inspector Ronan Carey there of RD Garda Station. Okay, we're running out of time on our Friday morning programme. I'm joined in studio now by uh, Marie Cairn. So, Marie, what have people been saying about the stories we've been broadcasting this morning? Good morning, Ken, and good morning to everybody listening in. Uh, Lots of reaction, I suppose, as you would expect, to the UK election result. Uh, Jack was in touch and said people in the media kept telling us that the British voter the last time didn't know what they were voting for. Well, they can't say that now. The people have spoken, and while certain people mightn't like it, that's democracy, says Jack. Sean phoned in from Drogheda on the same topic and points out that while Irish people seemed to think that Boris was going to lose, clearly he is more popular than people think and it's a very bad day for Labour, uh, says Sean from Drogheda. Seamus from Dundalk also on the same topic says, Ken, sadly this result means that Brexit is now definitely going to happen and that is a huge worry, especially for those of us with businesses along the border. So obviously concern there today about what the implications of that is going to be. Margaret text in, the DUP thought that um, Ireland was a threat to their union. Little did they know that they should have been looking a lot closer to home and especially at Boris. And that comes in from Margaret. Uh, another listener says, very interesting times ahead in the North, Ken. I'd say the DUP cannot believe it. They had it all, the balance of power. And um, they could have got so much for Northern Ireland during that time, but they failed to do that. And I think that's what hit them in the polls and especially their stance in relation to Brexit. It'll be interesting to see how they try to come back from this. Um, Mary was also in touch to say that um, Labour really did perform terribly, that people were expecting much more from Labour in the UK and wonder how long it will be before there'll be a new leader. Yeah, the question is who replaces him? Um, because apparently the uh, next, well, all uh, Labour Party leaders now are determined by the uh, entire membership, not like an executive, but the, I think they have 400,000 members in the UK and uh, they have a big say in who's going to be the next leader of the party. And I think there's a lot of people high up in the Labour Party who uh, regret that Jeremy Corbyn got the job because they would see him as being too far left. And he's uh, very much from uh, a Marxist background. But not only that, he was very indecisive about Brexit. So whoever is going to be the next uh, party leader will have to be somebody in the, the Tony Blair mould. 
Simon phoned in and Simon says that Ken, he mightn't uh, share the same opinion as most people, but he's absolutely delighted with the result uh, in the UK election because it means that Brexit is finally going to be dealt with. Simon feels that it has just been dragging on and dragging on and that many businesses have been unable to plan or do anything because it's hanging over them. And the sooner it's dealt with and we know what we are dealing with, if you like, like, that people will be able to get on. Well, it certainly brought, if you like, certainty to the outcome. Yes, well, that that's true. Uh, moving away from that then, and we had, Susan was in touch, listening into your interview with um, the Sinn Féin health spokesperson, Louise O'Reilly, and says that she was absolutely stunned to hear that uh, chemotherapy was being postponed for children. Uh, says that that's an absolute disgrace. Imagine having a child with cancer and hoping that they'll get better and then to be told that their chemotherapy is being postponed and says that all TDs should be ashamed of themselves that this is happening and that this is what our health system has become. And really annoyed over that this morning. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Teresa says, I'm listening about the printer this famous printer. Infamous It is infamous, yes. Infamous. Theresa makes the point, Ken, if you were a dressmaker, you'd know the amount of cloth that you'd need if you were going to make a garment. And the same should have applied in Leinster House. She cannot understand this at all and the excuses they made. She says that she went to work in a solicitor's office many years ago for 30 shillings a week. So it was many years ago. And you know what she was told then? Back in the 60s, was it? Or? She was told then. <laughs> in the 70s even. <laughs> well before my time. She was told then there were no scope for errors. And that was it. And she says that this should apply. Well, her also. boss should have been in the civil service then. And she feels that they are playing Monopoly with our money and it's nothing short of disgusting. So not a happy lady this morning. Uh, Fran also in touch, going back to your interview with Louise O'Reilly and Fran is saying that he feels it's time to abolish the HSE and nationalise the health service. He feels that there's enough money in the coffers to run the health service properly, but it's not being used wisely. And that's his thought. And he's, he's coming in as well in relation to the printing machine. When you look at the amount of money being spent on that and then you hear about that poor woman being chased for a death that she can't afford and then children not getting their treatment. Have we time for one or two more? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. we have. Uh, on the Union uh, McKinney interview just in relation to alcohol and pricing, uh, a listener says, slowly, slowly but surely Ireland is becoming a dictatorship. We can no, we are no longer allowed to make up our minds on anything, Ken. Vera says, the culture in Ireland is heavy drinking. If the wind blows, there's a drinks party get-together. Although Ireland has one of the highest rate of non-drinkers in the developed world. It's just that those who drink seem to drink a lot. Okay, I didn't know that. Now, yeah, guys. yeah, I've seen the go. figures, yeah, yeah. There you go. Jason says, drives me mad that because there are a few who go overboard on the booze, the rest of us have to suffer. What about those of us who can only afford a few glasses of beer or wine at home? How should we 
uh, why should we have to be paying more? And not everybody binge drinks. This is the point that Jason wants to make. Yeah, but of and course it's, it's aimed at trying to discourage youngsters from, if you like, getting hooked on drink and buying drink uh, on, a, on a daily basis. They can just walk into a shop. In the old days, you couldn't buy drink in a supermarket or a shop. You had to be of a certain age to get into a pub and there you could buy your drink, but you were a little bit you know, mature and adult and you knew what you were doing. Yes, well, Catherine is coming from coming at it from a parent's point of view. She phoned in and she says that she doesn't agree with all these mad prices that some places have on drink because she feels it encourages young people to binge drink. She says many don't even go to the pub now, Ken, before they go out for a night. They have drinking sessions in the house and maybe go straight to a nightclub. And it's because of the cheap drink that they are doing exactly, this. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And uh, pubs are losing out because they're not going in and drinking sensibly in the pub. So that's her thoughts on that. Okay, Marie, we're going to have to leave it there. That's it for me, not only indeed for today, but indeed for this week. Michael Reed will be back in the hot seat on Monday morning. I'll talk to you again next Friday. I want to thank Paul McKenna on sound, Maggie McGuire and Marie Kearns who put the programme together. For myself, Ken Murray, good morning. And Sinead Brazel is next. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.